Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're going to talk about crude oil, and in particular the view from producers. It's been a challenging few years for producers, with lowering prices, with new sources of supply, pressures around energy transition, and now COVID-19. All this has led to a more uncertain future. There's been a spate of bankruptcies, as well as mergers and acquisitions. The response has been varied, with some organisations looking to build up trading businesses, some laser-focused on the cost of production, and others really pushing on energy transition. Joining us to discuss is Nick Allen, General Manager of Global Crude Oil and NGLs at ConocoPhillips. Nick, thanks for joining. Hi, Paul, and thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Not at all. I guess I alluded it there in the, in the intro, but it has been a bit of a rocky ride for crude you know, over the last five or six years. And then a, a lot of other um, changes to the market landscape have happened as well. Can you just spend a few minutes catching us up on, on what the events of the last couple of years have been and, and, and where that leaves us right now? Sure. I mean, volatility in the oil market, uh, we've seen a lot of it over the last few years and, and it, it surely continues. So just looking back over these few years, you know, the the, the period from sort of mid-2014 to 2017, we saw, you know, really quite a big downturn in the industry, um, which uh, where the price didn't really recover until sort of 27, 2018, uh, with a, a couple of much stronger years, um, driven by OPEC uh, curbing production, uh, Iranian sanctions. Uh, and then actually in 2019, we saw, saw an attack on some Saudi infrastructure, uh, oil actually trading up as high as $80 a barrel, even for only for a short period. Um, you know, other key developments in the market has obviously we've seen the, the rise of U.S. production. In 2019, there was a lot of infrastructure that came into play in, uh, coming out of the Permian Basin, particularly in, in the U.S., and we saw U.S. production hitting a high of 13 million barrels per day. And that was all possible going, going back a couple of years due to the lifting of the U.S. export ban. Um, that came about at the end of 2015 and really you know, helped the expansion of U.S. oil production um, and um, for that oil to find its way into the international markets. Um, certainly in the midstream space, that then precipitated a lot of new build that allowed that that oil to get to market. Mm. We should just say that, so the, the price being, you know, around that 50 mark, let's say, as opposed to go back a decade around the 70, 80, you know, mark, is really a function of supply as opposed to demand. It's, it's Demand has still steadily increased over that, that period. Yes, I mean, demand has uh, continued to increase. Uh, in fact, demand was, you know, increasing really up until the beginning of this year, until COVID struck. That all said, the um, the supply demand balance was clearly shifting uh, as we saw you know, more supply coming into the market. Yes, specific, specifically, as I mentioned, with the, with the U.S. Um, supply really dominating. Um, and I think in that context, you know, the role of of OPEC and, and Russia or OPEC Plus became absolutely critical in trying to find some some balance and ensure that prices didn't. You know, sink too low 
now, as we came to the beginning of this year, that accord between Russia and the Saudis broke down. And with that breaking down, you know, we were already seeing prices come off very steeply before um, really the, the full impact of COVID was recognized. Just before COVID really struck, we had this, the breakdown of the, the I guess, Saudi-Russia agreement, then COVID hit. And that's when we saw, you know, right at that point, albeit somewhat artificially, but negative oil prices. And I, we've had the shock this year, but I guess there's been a, the general background has been, it's been a challenging few years for producers, especially those with higher cost structures, well, for everyone, really. The outcome of that right now has been perhaps not as much as we expected, but certainly challenged to the domestic US product producing market and some of the participants there. You've seen, I guess we're going to come on to it, but I, I kind of want to move on to the um, the capital activities that are going on and the resulting mergers. Can you kind of now set the scene a little bit for kind of what we're seeing, what what we've seen in 2020? Yes, well, you know, in, in 2020, we've seen um, obviously a huge amount of demand destruction. But coming into that, the scene was already set really for EMP companies. The, a lot of the valuations of these companies, particularly those based in North America, um, and involved in the shale plays, the valuations had declined quite significantly. Uh, and that was driven by really a couple of things. One was that um, there's been uh, clearly investors, uh, many investors have been leave, leaving the hydrocarbon space, if you like, um, exiting that, that particular part of the energy sector. Um, but prior to that, there was really a, a shift as well in the investment community where growth for growth's sake uh, was no longer acceptable and companies were going to be required to to generate or demonstrate that they can generate positive cash flow. I mean, it's sort of business 101, but they needed to be able to cover their capital outlay, their their operational expenditure. And then, of course, you know, for for investors, there was also a requirement to return value or or cash to the distributions to shareholders. And ideally, you know, companies would also want to have a, a strong balance sheet in order that they can ride through the the sort of price cycles that we're with. We've had this um, environment, as you say, kind of set for acquisitions. You've had a number of EMP organizations that have had uh, investors pull back. There's not the same um, access to capital markets as there was. There hadn't necessarily been this emphasis on <laughs> a business 101, you know, running for free cash flow. Uh, because you know you were you were looking to invest and grow, and the expectation was your end product was going to be worth more, and there was more to you know it's better to to buy it and find it now. Um, and all that really started coming off in 2018, which, as you say, set the scene for mergers and acquisitions before even COVID came up. We'll come on to it, but you you guys have just announced the acquisition of Concho Resources. How did organizations like ConocoPhillips attack that environment of low prices, challenging challenging markets, and how did that set you and some others up for surviving 2020? Yeah, I think the key really for operating in the EMP space, you know, going forward, um, that we certainly recognized a few years ago, was the that companies need to be able to generate positive cash flow. Um, what does that mean? Um, it means that you need to be able to cover your capital costs, your operational expenditure, and um, enough 
cash to, you know, have distributions for your shareholders as well. And, and ideally, you can maintain a, a strong balance sheet in doing so. Um, we've, we have a, a term at ConocoPhillips, we talk about cost of supply. Um, cost of supply is uh, an equivalent price needed to generate a 10% after-tax return on a point-forward basis, and, that, and that's a, a fully burdened, burdened cost, and it could include, for example, the cost of, of carbon. And this has been our standard, if, if you like, for being able to ensure that our costs are low enough to compete through the, the, the various price cycles. Um, clearly, having a strong balance sheet has also been key. We think that this model is going to be broadly adopted by companies in, in the ENP space going forward. And so I guess what we're, for the most part, seeing is these shale producers are smaller mid-sized shale producers are being taken over or merging with established oil majors and producers i guess why why is that the dynamics of the merger what 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 benefits are there what what can big oil bring to to those types of um, plays and what people are zooming in on as, as as attractive attributes when they're looking at which organizations they might potentially pursue well, I think there clearly when you, you bring two companies together, you get some efficiencies and economies of scale. You know, it's likely to help you uh, in, in sourcing uh, your supply chain um, more economically. Um, but there are other advantages as well. But I think it's, it's fair to say that um, th- this is not sort of any company, just get, you know, any companies getting together here. Um, when we're looking at potential targets, clearly we want to be adding to our portfolio in areas that complement our portfolios. So the Permian Basin was an area where we're particularly interested in in increasing our our acreage there and production. Um, And when you're looking at a a target, uh, the quality of the acreage is, is extremely important their ability to have low cost of supply um, themselves um, is also important. F- furthermore, yeah, we accept that um, you know, we have some good and interesting technology for our unconventionals business. Uh, other companies also have that. And by combining two companies, uh, we can take really the best of, of both of them and increase our efficiency along those lines too. Mm. Because it has been a bit, I think we covered this in a previous episode, that a lot of these shale plays, were, as, as you kind of alluded to, they were getting rewarded for growing. And actually, in many cases, the either production rates or the cost of production, or in most cases, both of those attributes, um, weren't coming out as expected. And I guess there is a lot of technology that larger organizations can bring that perhaps wasn't available to these smaller organizations, but also 100 years worth of operating experience on how to actually you know, really zoom in on that, as you call it, as you guys term it, top cost of supply. You know, could, could that, it's a hard question, but do you think that particular trend will mean that shale production will become, I guess, more competitive and be able to sort of weather these, these low prices better than perhaps people were expecting them to? The difficulty we're talking about shale production sort of generically is it, it really not, not all shale plays are, are equal. 
And it's very important to understand that there's a huge range of, of cost of supply uh, throughout the, the different shale plays. Um, so, you know, one might look at, uh, the, the back end, for example, and if you're in some of the less desirable parts of that play, the cost of supply may be, you know, well into the $50, uh, before you can, you know, start to make a, a decent return, even in parts of the Eagleford, you may find that, uh, parts of that play also are more expensive to, to run. So the key is to focus on not just a particular play, but the be very focused on the acreage uh, in which you're going to be operating. We've certainly over the last few years really been looking at our portfolio and rationalizing that along the lines of the lowest cost of supply. Uh, and when we look at uh, an acquisition, that would be very much focused on certainly what the resource potential is, um, but also being able to you know, extract many uh, millions or, or billions of barrels um, at the at the lower end of the range. Mm. And before we come on to Concho specifically, I, I would like to get a couple of words from you on on specifically why why that deal went ahead or is in process. Technology is also revolutionising um, shale production as well. A business that is typified by pretty high operating expense as opposed to capital expense, which would be more typical of offshore production. And therefore, there really is a drive to automate. Can you just give us a couple of words on that as well? How, how do you get, see technology lowering that cost of supply? And, and you know, that's something that I know that ConocoPhillips are at the forefront of. Yes, I mean, we, we certainly see that the, the push to deploy more technology in this space will continue to, to, to make us more competitive. And there's going to be an absolute necessity to, to keep that evolution going. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I think you know deploying more technology, both through through data analytics, you know, better software, um, but also you know, potentially automating above ground as well. You know these things will, in due course, all drive the the cost lower, which will be absolutely crucial to compete. Fantastic. I, I guess I want to change tack slightly and, and move on to the, I guess, the marketing side. So one of the things that we've spoken again about on this podcast, but you know, other, it seems to be quite a prevalent message of 2020 is that having a robust marketing uh, and trading and optimization platform attached to your production has been of great value to um, oil majors around the world in 2020 with such a volatile market. And there's been, you know, generally speaking, over the last two to three years, a drive by producers to increase the sophistication of their marketing and trading platforms. This is obviously your your business, what you do at ConocoPhillips. Can you kind of just help us understand a bit, you know, there, there are a variety of approaches or strategies to marketing oil out there. So some companies do it from right from the wellhead um, and others have at least a global trading entity. Can you perhaps at the broad level give us some idea what some of the drivers are about where organizations choose to position themselves on that spectrum and what factors might determine that? As you say, I mean, there are a, a variety of different approaches you can take to marketing and trading oil. And what actually drives that will very much vary from company to company. Yeah, what what will likely to be taken into account is what, what is your production position? What is the scale of your operation? 
Um, do you have an upstream and downstream? Does that create a lot of option value for, for you? Um, yeah, what is the company's appetite for, for trading risk? Uh, or indeed, is a trading group seen as, as risk mitigation? Uh, you know, a group that might be able to generate revenue, both in a, in a strong market, but also in, in a weak market through storage plays, for example. So there are a lot of different reasons and, and drivers um, that may take you to a, a particular point for your, your, your marketing and trading business. For us, the focus is absolutely around finding and producing oil and gas. And we've, we've certainly moved from, uh, you know, a few years ago, I would, I would characterize us as really selling at the first liquid point or very close to the first liquid point, so pretty close to the wellhead. And we've been moving away from, from that over the last few years and really diversifying into other markets. Um, and what's driving that? Well, we, we have the, the scale and scope to do that. Uh, as, as we're an international company, uh, we can move our oil you know, around the globe. We do have capability to move you know, through trucking, pipelines, uh, rail, shipping. Um, and we also have a presence you know, in each of the locations of sort of London, Calgary, Singapore, and of course, Houston. So, you know, why did we want to diversify? We were away from just uh, a single point of sale or first liquid point. That's mainly driven by, by opportunity. Um, in recent years, there's been a lot of infrastructure build out in the, particularly in the, in the lower 48. Um, and at reasonable cost, that's enabled us to access uh, several other markets. It, it's also about protecting value, of course, um, in order for uh, production not to be captive. Uh, we, we feel it's important that we have access to to other markets and we, we can we have a diverse range of customers, both refining customers, trading customers, and, and those can be not just here in the lower 48, for example, but because of our footprint, um, those customers are around the world. So it makes sense for us to be able to trade really, um, really on, on a global level. Why has it been so beneficial? You've just seen these phenomenal results. I know this is a pretty prosaic question, but you've seen these phenomenal results from those majors who have these trading entities. How has having those entities really benefited in this in 2020 you know, as a result of COVID-19 and market disruptions? So the, the essence of trading is that uh, it's possible to, to make money well, and lose money, of course, but, but uh, the opportunity to make money when there's significant volatility uh, tends to be heightened. And as I, as I was saying earlier, that can happen in both markets that are moving steeply upwards, but also markets that are moving uh, very dramatically downwards as well. And it just so happens that this this year with COVID, you've seen extraordinary structure in the market where those that are in a position to buy barrels cheap at the bottom of this cycle, you know, can put them in tank, can sell forward down down the curve and can lock in really very, very steep margins. And, you know, many people will have seen the futures 
prices and, and the, the structure or contango in the market there. But uh, that was perhaps only half the story. Some of the cash differentials were extremely distressed um, when back in the second quarter of this year. Um, so, so there was potential, if you've got the wherewithal to, to, to store, to move barrels around into those locations or put them on vessels to store oil, um, there's potentially a, a lot of revenue to be generated through that activity. You've kind of got that straight sort of price play to some extent, but also, as I understand it from our previous discussions, if you actually have that global footprint, you're able to get to customers who are willing to pay a premium, uh, like Chinese buyers, um, whom normally you would have just yielded that margin to uh, another intermediary. Exactly. And we, b- because of our, our scale, which is, it does make us different from other small AMP producers, you know, we do have those, those contacts. We, you know, we are talking to those end users in China. And so it's, it's very much easier for us to, to pick up the phone and, and do that deal. And r- rather than relying on a third party who may be just wanting to sit in the middle of that deal or to take all the value out of that deal, it becomes very difficult to, to make that trade work um, if you're dealing with a trading company in the middle, for example. Yeah, probably that bit that's the key driver that we're seeing behind producers looking to build up these types of platforms because um, there is also an expectation that the world is somewhat deglobalizing. Uh, at least that's been a recent trend. Um, you, you're having these, I think it's, people have recognized how um, fragile some of these supply chains are. And you know, when they do become dislocated, um, there is great opportunity for you know, uh, wins or, or losses. Um, and that is part of this driver, especially when ultimately the view is with, with energy transition that the underlying value of your hydrocarbons is going to decrease over the next 20 years you need to maximize the return for your firm and and its shareholders yes i think that's right and the you know as we look at the energy transition it's it's not going to be so well synchronized around the globe that they're not going to be areas where demand is relatively much stronger for for oil you know if we look at developing nations and you know where the the growth is going to come in the next 10, 20 years, uh, it's it's pretty clear that that probably is not going to be in in Europe or or even in the United States. Um, it will be in these other markets. So, in order, the the ability to develop your outlets and have a, a solid customer base, um, you know, far beyond where produ- where the production necessarily is, uh, we see that as an advantage. Staying on the marketing side. You've, you've obviously, uh, I guess, are there differences when it comes to marketing the unconventional shale um, or, or other more sort of challenging oils than, than conventional oil production? There certainly are, are differences. And it, this has actually taken the market uh, in the, some of our customers, it's, it's taken a bit of a while to understand. Um, you know, when we're looking at conventional production, uh, it's typically coming out of uh, one giant reservoir where the crude quality remains pretty consistent over many years. Um, you know, examples of that in our case would be our Alaskan North Slope production uh, or Ecofisk crude oil out of the North Sea, for example. Now, when when we look at unconventional production, it's it, it's very different. It's uh, about production 
which is drilled uh, through many wells over over an acreage where the geology or the quality of the play may vary uh, quite quite a bit. Um, so what that means is that you know if you have a, a a label a crude oil Eagleford, for example, is that not all Eagleford will be will be equal. Not all Eagleford is is the same grade. So we think the uh, understanding the difference between conventional and unconventional production is very important because and, and the variation that one might see through through grades. Um, we certainly spend a lot of time trying to be uh, the best custodians we can of our quality and ensuring that we maintain consistency. Um, and we have a, we're fortunate that we have a, a sizable enough position that we're able to do that. So in many cases, we're able to produce the oil and you know transport it to our customer, um, and it's not you know, blended into other streams or uh, the the quality can be relied on very very solidly. Because mm. I guess moving on to energy transition, um, it, it was quite, uh, it, was, it was in some ways remarkable. You were, ConocoPhillips was sort of the first of the US producers to actually make commitments to adopt the Paris um, climate risk framework. This is pre uh, the, the election that just happened. Can you talk about that? What, what was, the, what was the, 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 the reason behind that statement? And what does that mean for ConocoPhillips? So it, it was important for us really to to show some leadership in this space. Um, the uh, you know what's in front of us is not going away, and uh, we're certainly very proud to be the first US EMP company to to make a commitment to you know this Paris aligned climate risk framework. And fundamentally, we our industry faces what what we're calling the triple challenge. You know the first point of that is the urgent requirement to address climate change. Against that, we've also got the requirement to meet the world's energy demands, which are significant. And then uh, as, as a company that you know, wants to be competitive and, uh, and attractive, uh, we've got to be able to do that all profitably. It's clear to us that, first off, the, you know, the, the pathway to for the energy transition is, is unclear. The, the, the pace and sort of timing of this transition is going to be it's not going to be a straight line. We don't. We don't believe. But if you look at the scenarios going forward, and you know, if we're looking at the 1.5 to 2 degree C world, as we look forward um, to the commitment to to the Paris Agreement and, and the kind of scenarios that are going to get us there, um, certainly according to the IEA, at least um, looking at their sustainable development scenario. Uh, there should be demand in 2040 for 65 million barrels of oil per day, uh, still even then. And in order to get there, the industry is going to need to invest uh, around 13 to 14 trillion dollars. So there's clearly a, a place for for uh, companies like ours going going forward, providing that we can we can compete. So the question becomes. What are we going to be doing in order to meet this commitment? The areas that we're we're looking at, uh, which probably aren't surprising, are carbon capture and storage, uh, the use of carbon offsets, or what you might call negative emissions. Um, that might be through through 
reforestation and, and other types of offset, offsets. Um, we're also focused on the, the hydrogen economy and then alternative energies uh, that will help us reduce the carbon intensity of our existing operations. Um, so you've got these various plans to reduce carbon. Has, and I guess it's taken for granted that, you know, most of these challenges are society-wide challenges. And, you know, it's, it's a combination of both, you know, uh, retailers of, of products, but also the consumers and, and, and behaviours. Um, has they, how, you know, what has the response been from uh, your peers, from uh, the markets to ConocoPhillips leadership, at least from a US perspective here? Well, the response has been incredibly favourable. Uh, and I would be surprised if we don't see others, you know, follow with, with the same action. It's clearly, you know, as we see administrations change here in the US, and we just see more and more momentum around trying to solve the climate change problem. Um, it's clearly incumbent on our industry to to play our part and, and do that in a, a responsible and, and proactive fashion. Moving on, you know, the other impact of COVID, um, not just on making um, some trading houses uh, wildly successful this year, um, has been that we've all been it's changed working practices. Um, you know, most offices around the world have been working from home for a, a significant portion of the uh, of the year. And as we as we talk right now, most people are going back into various forms of lockdown. How has that? Um, it'd be great to just understand how Conoco Phillips have tackled um, COVID and, and that dynamic, and you know how that has has um, affected or, or played in in you running your global team? Well, I'm happy to say that we're mostly, certainly in North America, we're mostly back in the in the office now. And um, But yes, in March, uh, everyone ended up working from home. And I'm sure it's pretty well the, the case for most of your, your listeners. And it was, we, we were concerned as to how that was going to work, to be, to be frank. It was almost a, a uh, more by luck than judgment that we'd we'd actually studied or, or had a presentation on Microsoft Teams back at the beginning of the year, and then we ended up sort of living by by it for for many many months. But overall, I was uh, amazed by how efficient we became working from home. We got everything done that we we would normally have got done, and in fact, we had some. We we even managed to implement a deal capture system. That was on our plan anyway, and we kept absolutely to our our schedule on that, and we did that uh, while everyone was working remotely. So that was replacing a, a, we replaced our entire deal capture system for our global liquids business uh, during the course of 2020. So so that just goes to show you know what can be achieved using this technology. I think we can say that there there's some pieces that that, that have been missed out. Um, through working remotely, I have little doubt that those earlier career early career employees you know found it a lot more challenging. I think they yes, we could argue they're slicker with the technology, but um, I think they're missing out on a lot of the face to face interactions, uh, the ability to quickly check in with their bosses, you know watch um, you know, maybe watch people in action that they normally wouldn't see. I think particularly roles in professional services, whether that's trading, lawyers, even search. A lot of it is done by shadowing your colleagues. And that's one of the things that's really hard to replicate 
via technology. So I, I think that definitely that onboarding and as you say, early early stage um, people in their career, um, I think that has had a negative impact. Um, on the flip side, what I've seen that's quite interesting is for an industry that's notorious for travel, um, you know, lots, lots, you know, traveling 50% of the year or more um, to all of these hubs, you know, I think there's been a recognition that perhaps it doesn't actually need all that much travel and that there's plenty of meetings that now we've all gotten used to the technology, whether it's Teams or Zoom or whatever it might be. Um, there's a more willingness to meet via that. Uh, and actually, you know, I think it has given people at the uh, mid to later stages of their career some some time back and a bit more work-life balance. And I think people will end up 2020 with a bit of a different perspective on kind of what, um, you know, what they want to do with their careers in some ways. Yes, no, I, I would agree with that totally. It will be different going forward. Though there are still occasions when that face-to-face interaction, I think particularly when you're trying to build a rapport with new customers, I don't think it's quite the same when, when it's done um, over video. But um, but I think we're all amazed by quite what has been done and, and just how well it has worked. And uh, yeah, probably looking forward to a bit less jet lag going forward. Yeah, and it's interesting as well, the, the take-up, uh, the velocity of take up on various trading solu- technology solutions, whether those are shared platforms, you know, like VACT or so forth, or internal systems, I think that has also accelerated that aspect, which again, I guess, points to your cost of sale focus. Um, if you can drive down the, the mid and back office expenses, that's a, that's a big win. I agree. And I, that trajectory is, is only likely to continue. Um, and it's probably just been accelerated by, by COVID. Looking, I guess this is this is always the bit where it can get a bit woo-woo, if you'd like. Um, and, and I know that it's unfair to ask anyone what the price of oil will be in ten years' time because no one knows. But as a producer, what do you think the next ten years holds for the market? What are the big things you're looking out for? Um, what trends do you expect to see? One given is that price is likely to continue to be volatile. Uh, it just seems hard to imagine that. Uh, the markets are going to be in perfect balance through the energy transition and throwing in all of the the usual geopolitical issues that crop up uh, and, and have such a profound effect on commodities. I, I think it's you, we shouldn't also forget that there are plenty of countries that still rely on hydrocarbons as, as a main source of revenue to run their national budgets. And Although there may be motivation to diversify those economies away from from the petrodollar, the path is not going to be that easy. Um, They're they're going to have to be some really large societal shifts. Um, The populations of those economies in particular are going to both need to have the capacity and, and skills to shift to a new economic model. And I think that will be be challenging. As a result, I think reliance on a on a fairly robust oil price for certain countries will continue for some time. And then, if you look, you know, if we're looking at the longer term here, the incredible pressure, sort of population pressure that we're going to see. I think the UN forecasts around two billion additional people on the planet in the next thirty years. That is alternative energy going to be affordable and at a scale to provide for this population. 
I think that's a, a very big question. And even if transportation maybe shifts and we see less use of, of diesel and, and gasoline, for example, uh, more adoption of, of wind, solar, natural gas, and hydrogen, even that, there are a lot of materials that we use every day, um, which those additional folks on the planet are going to want to use as well. You know, so many of those are either made or, or reliant on hydrocarbon components. So I think demand will continue to be strong in, in that area. So in summary, I would say it's uh, it will continue to be a very complex picture. But as we look forward, it's very unlikely that oil is not still going to play a significant part of the energy and materials mix over the next few decades. There's also comment about whether comparing offshore production to onshore production, but specifically shale. What do you see for the shale markets? Do you think that, because there's a lot of pessimism right now here in, here in Houston, where I live, um, about the, you know, the value of the land, the acreage all these organizations have acquired, um, about the, the viability because you know, of the, the, the high cost of sale, to use your terminology. Do you think that that market will be dominated in a few years' time, much like the offshore sector is, by a few large players? I think it's extremely likely that that will be the case, yes. You know, unconventional production, if it's at the right cost, you know, does have some advantages. And one, one of the advantages is first versus offshore projects, for example, is that it's very short cycle. Um, so you can really flex up and down your capital expenditure in the unconventional space very rapidly. Uh, and, and that's an advantage um, rather than, for example, piling in uh, billions of dollars into very large projects uh, where you may not see any oil actually produced for you know, quite a number of years. Um, that's a very different profile and probably possibly a profile which will be less attractive to companies um, who are trying to manage the energy transition. Yeah, I guess there's an element of policy in there as well, right? Um, you know, Europe, for example, is is much less likely to develop shale at any scale compared to the US, um, even with the current change of administration. But it is shale is much more at risk to policy changes than offshore production is. It's interesting that you've had a huge pullback of capital from the industry, private equity in particular around shale, but um, more broadly on a global basis around offshore production. That could have some quite significant impacts in a couple of years' time if a lot of these large projects, particularly offshore, have been put on hold or cancelled outright. We could be in for a bit of a, a volatile few years and some pretty surprising oil prices. We've seen a very significant uh, reduction in capital expenditure, you know, in the in the oil sector, oil and gas sector, this year. I think that will have some ramifications for the next uh, few years going forward. What we, we need to be aware of is that um, you know production could come out you know a lot lower than some might have anticipated uh, as a result of this. And what that means is that the the price may, when we've just seen it overextend to the downside, we might potentially see it overextend to the upside as that tightness in production kicks in. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I think, again, it's probably pointing back to why having that trading platform or at least sophisticated marketing operation in-house 
um, is going to be a real valuable asset over the coming years, not only, I guess, to potentially foresee that earlier than others without that insight and optics uh, on the market have, but also when it does happen to be able to trade it to your advantage. Yeah, we've certainly seen through some of the volatility and and the price cycle recently that that I think those with um, a commercial arm with you know, capabilities to exploit the, the the price both when it's going up and down that is helpful and yeah often on the commercial side we do see kind of leading indicators to see whether we're we're heading into a more difficult period or not. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. I guess it's uh, it's hard to ask anyone what uh, what the the future of of oil will contain, but um, it's been a really insightful discussion over the, the trends and particularly to understand a bit more about um, ConocoPhillips's uh, recent moves. And um, yeah, look forward to uh, hopefully having you on again in the future and, and seeing, seeing what predictions came true. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.